and many exhibitions that take place here are really his creation, including, for example, several years ago, visual music. He has been concentrating on this exhibition for many, many years, and he'll probably tell you something about it. But it has always been his dream to do If Klein exhibition, and indeed it is here. It's the first exhibition of If Klein in the United States after 30 years. The other person that I have with me is uh, Belmont Freeman, right here. Belmont Freedom is an established architect who lives in New York. In 1986, he found Freeman and Pizer Architects, and in 1994, he created his own architecture firm called Belmont Freeman Architects. An extraordinary creative group, he's also an academic, so he also lectures. He received numerous prizes for his architecture, so we are extremely grateful for him to be here. What is known, what, why we have chosen Belmont Freeman is because he was a chairman of the Storefront Gallery in New York, a non-for-profit, where they put together a wonderful architectural uh, exhibition of Yves um, Klein architecture. And this is the particular element during this event that he will concentrate on and speak about. Richard Chartier, right here next to him, is a Washington DC-based sound artist who actually performs internationally. He has been in Europe, Japan, Australia, North America. In many of these venues, he has produced something that is known as microsound or neo-modernist sound, which is, means absolutely minimal music architecture, uh, music performance. He has performed here before. He has also been included, for example, in 2008, Whitney Biennale. The next person next to Kerry is really extremely famous, unbelievably active, Roland Celeste. Roland is a culture attaché at the French Embassy, but he is, I have to tell you, much more than that. He's probably one of the most active culture attaché of any embassy. He's an avid reader, loves theater, loves music, has organized all kinds of concerts, not only in the French Embassy, but also in other museums such as the National Gallery or the Phillips Collection. And we love having Roland with us. We will start talking now and expect to finish our walkthrough at 7.30. At 7.30, we will move to the third floor. We are on the second floor. In the middle of the third floor, there is a learner room. And in the learner room, we will be experiencing something really, something exciting, something that we haven't done at the Hirshhorn before. And that's a judo performance. That is being, uh, and the person who is in charge of the group that you will be seeing from 7.30 to 8 is Ted Nulls. He is the sixth degree black belt and judo instructor with the Washington Judo Club. He's right there, he's uh, doing the walkthrough with us. He has done judo demonstrations all over Washington, including White House, the Japanese Embassy, the National Cherry Blossom Festival. They will concentrate during their uh, demonstration to talk to you about what it means to register with Kodagan. And Kodagan is the type of judo that Yves Klein was passionate about. 
Thank you. Kerry. Thanks, Melina. <clears throat> well, I, I, you know, I'm really happy that there's such a big group here tonight. Thank you all for coming, and uh, we hope to do something quite different tonight. On the other hand, I, I, I wish it wasn't such a big group because I wanted to stop in the first gallery to begin with to talk about a few things in that very first gallery, which hopefully as you walk through I can, I can speak about now, which I think kind of sets the stage for Eve Klein. Now, we're going to do something very, very different tonight. There uh, are uh, four of us uh, that are going to try to do a kind of moving panel discussion because I'm really tired of panel discussions that just sit on the stage and they don't go anywhere. So we're actually going to move it through the show and we're going to try to each uh, offer our own insights uh, into Eve Klein. Uh, from very, very different perspectives, from perspective of a curator, uh, from the perspective of a uh, composer and uh, designer, and from the perspective of an architect, and the perspective uh, of a cultural attache, um, as well as uh, 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 the, the head of a judo school, the uh, a judo expert, which Klein was very involved with. So you're going to hear all those different sides tonight, and, and this is why we call it the many faces of Eve. We should have called this the three faces of Eve. Um, you know, so, but uh, there's more than just three, so uh, we had to settle for this. But uh, anyway, the very first gallery that you walked into sets the stage for Eve Klein, I think, in an unusual way. Most people know Eve Klein, if you know him at all, from his blue monochromes that he did as the famous, you know, uh, French artist who did made famous the blue monochrome, or if you don't know the blue monochrome, usually people know the anthropometries in which he had nude models come out with blue paint on their bodies and kind of conducted them to create um, uh, impressions on canvases which became these, these wonderful paintings. But everything that's behind Klein's work, everything, pretty much everything he did throughout his entire life, and by the way, his life was very, very short. He died when he was 34 years old, and he really didn't start making the art that you see in this exhibition until 1955. He died in 1962, which means that his entire career as an artist was no more than seven years, really, which is about the same amount of time it took us to put this exhibition together. <laughs> so I can't even imagine how, how, how an artist does this. But um, in the very first gallery, the first thing you see is not a monochrome painting, not an anthropometry painting. The first thing you see is a film, and it's an image of Eve Klein pointing to a blank wall. And he's contemplating this wall, and he seems to be gesturing toward it. And he seems to be wondering, is there something supposed to be on this wall? Do you have to hang a painting on the wall? Or can you not hang a painting on the wall, and yet it's still about something? And for Klein, his desire was for everyone to reach a state of immaterial sensibility. That's what he kept repeating over and over again. Imma the immaterial, to reach a state of immaterial sensibility, to reach, to go into, as he called it sometimes, the void. Now, the other film that you saw as you came in uh, by that wall of color monochromes were some images that had been shot, that uh, Klein had shot himself. It's very clear he had it kind of set up. Um, at the Arise Claire Gallery in 1958, 
at an exhibition which has become known as The Void. And in that exhibition, on the outside of the gallery, he painted, and I'll talk more about blue later, but he painted the windows blue, and he had a blue curtain hung. You entered through the blue curtain just like you would be staring at this painting, this blue painting. But you entered it, and you came out on the other side, and on the other side was nothing, just an empty room, which he had earlier taken all the paintings out of and then whitewashed everything in the room and then left again. So that was the void. And one of the things that he wanted to do with what he called International Klein Blue, which was not so much a color he invented, because the color is just ultramarine, but what he invented was the way of applying the color to a surface without having to mix it up with a binder first and then paint it on with a brush. He was always looking for a way of making a painting without actually making a painting. And as we go through the show, you'll see that everything he did was a way of both embracing painting and also getting away from painting. Because for him, what he would say is, painting was not the end product. This behind me here, as beautiful as it is to me anyway, was not the final thing that he was about. In fact, what he called it was the ashes of his art. It was only the ashes left over after he'd been thinking about the void. And it was only a gateway into the void. It was only a way of a portal of contemplation of getting to the immaterial sensibility. So I'd like to stop there for a moment, and maybe I could actually ask Roland and Audrey. Uh, sorry. Audrey. Audrey, if they could maybe uh, say a few words about this, and actually what uh, Roland would like to do is actually instead of a little bit like what we did with the show, actually. If you go through this exhibition, you're not going to find any curatorial interpretation through the show. If you want curatorial interpretation, buy the book, which is this pure blue object, um, or read the brochure. Um, but if you want uh, Klein's own words, that's what we used in the exhibition. Everything in the exhibition is Klein's own words when you see a text. What Roland's going to do is read you poetry, I think from approximately the late 1800s to the 1950s or so. Thank you, Pierre. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to talk about literature on Yves Klein uh, because you can talk about the books he has read and you can talk about the books at the same time, written at the same time that he was painting because some of them have the same kind of inspiration. Even he has not read those books. So I will try to do both of them. And I just would like to try to start with a poem by Baudelaire, because of course, Yves Klein was a great reader of Baudelaire and Rimbaud, and just to set the tone. And the, the poem by Baudelaire maybe is known by you. It's uh, Correspondance, which uh, establishes the link between this immaterial sensitivity and uh, the material world. And nature is considered as a temple where some hints are given to you. And you will see that the first part of the poem is a kind of theory, and the second half of the poem is an example of this kind of correspondence between sound and color, 
between color and uh, the sense of touch. And you will just see how he moves from the theory to uh, the actual uh, example. Maybe we'll read it because we don't have enough text. Maybe we'll read it in English first and in French after. Correspondences. Nature is a temple in which living pillars sometimes give voice to confused words. Man passes there through forests of symbols which look at him with understanding eyes. Like prolonged echoes mingling in the distance in a deep, tenebrous unity. Vast as the dark of night and as the light of day, perfumes, sounds, and colors correspond. There are, um, there are perfumes as cool as the flesh of children, sweet as oboes, green as meadows, and others are corrupt and rich, triumphant, with power to expand into infinity like amber and essence, musk, benzoin, that sing the ecstasy of the soul and senses. And in French, correspondance, la nature est un temple où de vivants piliers laissent parfois sortir de confuses paroles. L'homme y passe à travers des forêts de symboles qu'il observe avec des regards familiers, comme de longs échos qui de loin se confondent dans une ténébreuse et profonde unité, vaste comme la nuit et comme la clarté, les parfums, les couleurs et les sons se répondent. Il est des parfums frais comme des chairs d'enfants, doux comme les hauts-bois, verts comme les prairies, et d'autres corrompus, riches et triomphants, ayant l'expansion des choses infinies, comme l'ambre, le musc, le benjoin et l'encens qui chantent les transports de l'esprit et des sens. Maybe you don't understand all the French words, but some are the same as in English. And we would like to, to read another text by Rimbaud. Uh, Rimbaud had a strong influence, I think, on Yves Klein. And there are uh, very famous uh, texts by Rimbaud, especially one giving the color of uh, vowels, uh, the, the wild's uh, sonnet. But I decided to choose a, the bridges because it just about, it's a very abstract uh, painting, in fact, in, and with the gray color and just a little bit a touch of red and blue. And we'll read it in English and then in French. The bridges, gray skies of crystal, a bizarre design of bridges, now straight, now curved, and others descending in oblique angles to meet the former, and these patterns repeating themselves in other well-lit windings of a canal, but also long and weightless that the shores, weighted with domes, sink and contract. Some of these bridges are still covered with hovels. Others bear masts, signals, frail parapets. Minor cords interlace and fade. Ropes rise from the banks. You distinguish a red coat, other clothes perhaps, and musical instruments. Are those popular airs, snatches from noble concerts, the remains of public anthems? The water is gray and blue, wide as an arm of the sea. A white ray, falling from on high, annihilates this comedy. Les ponts. Des ciels gris de cristal. Un bizarre dessin de pont, 
ceux-ci droits, ceux-là bombés, d'autres descendants ou obliquant en angle sur les premiers, et ces figures se renouvelant dans les autres circuits éclairés du canal, mais tous tellement longs et légers que les rives chargées de dômes s'abaissent et s'amoindrissent. Quelques-uns de ces ponts sont encore chargés de masures, d'autres soutiennent des mâts, des signaux de frêles parapets, des accords mineurs se croisent et filent, des cordes montent des berges, on distingue une veste rouge, peut-être d'autres costumes et des instruments de musique, sont-ce des airs populaires, des bouts de concerts seigneuriaux, des restants d'hymnes publics, l'eau est grise et bleue, large comme un bras de mer, un rayon blanc tombant du haut du ciel anéantit cette comédie. Um, I wanted to um, actually mention that one of the very first pieces that Eve Klein uh, ever did was something called a monotone symphony, monotone silence. And the correspondence that you read uh, by Baudelaire uh, reminds me of the kind of concept of synesthesia and the idea that colors can relate to music. And this evening, uh, Richard Chartier is going to talk about this very, very early work of um, Eve Klein's that he did, or at least that he conceived of in the late 1940s. We're going to move now to the next large room, which is, you'll recognize it because it's filled with what is called the anthropometries. Those are the ones in which women were painted blue and Klein pressed their bodies, or had them press their bodies against the canvases. So we'll stop there, and uh, then uh, Richard will talk uh, a little bit about uh, the monotone symphony. Good evening. Can everyone hear me? Okay. My name is Richard Chartier. I'm a sound artist. And what really fascinated me about Eve Klein is this work that he did, which was the only work he did with sound or music. And if you look back here right now, when the, uh, the video starts, which it's not starting, you'll see that on March 9th, 1960, he did a performance which these paintings were made, and you'll see him make them. And there's a collection of nine artists, uh, nine musicians, and he's conducting them as well as conducting the, uh, the women that are being painted and then pressed on the uh, canvases. Now, what you don't realize when you're watching this is that the monotone silent symphony went as follows. It was very, speci very specific. It was 20 minutes of a single note, F sharp, 20 minutes, these nine musicians, and then 20 minutes of complete silence. So what he's doing here is very, very different from anything else that was going on at the time. It predate he said he made this in between 1947 and 1949, which when he originally composed this work. 
Now that's a long, that's several years before John Cage did his piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which was a piece that was complete silence. So this predates minimalism in music as well, because it wasn't until 1968 that uh, Michael Nyman coined the term minimum music or minimalism as a genre. Uh, one of the things that he said about this is that even in its presence, this symphony does not exist. It exists outside the phenomenology of time because it is neither born nor will it die. So what he's creating here is almost less of a, a musical piece and more of a sculpture because everyone that's listening to this is involved in this piece when it's performed as, as such. Uh, so it's kind, of, it's kind of enigmatic. It's a, almost a meditation in a way. And it goes along with a lot of his other ideas of, of the void. You have this pure tone that's being played by these musicians, and then you have the void. It's very much like how the paintings, <coughs> his, uh, one of his early exhibits of the monochromes were presented elevate or distance away from the wall to present the void as something not part of this world. So here you have Eve Klein creating this work. Um, and he, he felt that the duration wasn't actually important and that it had a feeling outside of time. So what he wanted you to do is basically, it's almost like a drone work. Uh, and you kind of lose your sense of time within this space. Um, I'm trying to think, there's a, the after silence. What, what really interests me about this work is the after silence is there's a physicality to it because he's taking people and placing them in this situation where they're hearing something than hearing nothing, which is very, very different from most. You know, you have music and you have spaces between the music, but to extend this into the void was uh, quite different. And it, it really relates to a piece that he did in 1946 was called The Signing of the Sky, in which he had his signature, uh, had a, a little airplane go up and basically sign the sky, and it dissolved. So that was a very early work by him. And then you have this work, it's kind of the same thing, where it's the material and then the immaterial, and these two things colliding. Um, one of the last things he said after, when the, the performance was over, he just said, the myth is in the art. So that's. Thanks, Richard. Um, <laughs> I wanted to just say a couple of things about these paintings and uh, because they're somewhat different and also the sponge reliefs that you saw and the sponge sculptures that you saw as you came by. Um, Klein had been working with the monochromes uh, for some time uh, when he realized and what he was trying to do was get you to contemplate, you know, contemplate this void, uh, which, and he felt that ultramarine was this deep blue color, which was the further the nothingness in a way. Um, he often quotes Gaston Bachelard, a French philosopher, that says first there's nothing, then there's a deep nothing, and then there's deep blue after that. And so Klein was trying to get you to contemplate that. But what he found was he would often use sponges as he would paint. And he was realizing that what he, what he felt personally was that it was sucking up the blue. 
spot. And so he got very interested in the idea that the sort of immaterial was finding its way into this material sponge. So he began to add the sponges to the paintings as a kind of notion of moving between the two worlds of the immaterial um, and uh, the material world. The sponge being material, but having sucked up the color of the immaterial sensibility. Um, these paintings behind me, such as this one called When uh, People Begin to Fly, People Begin to Fly, uh, which is from the Manil Collection in Houston, uh, were made because he started thinking a lot about, well, he thought a lot about Hiroshima, for example, and the way that people, and actually this painting on the left over here is actually titled Hiroshima. And he thought about Hiroshima and how, despite the fact that people were incinerated and no longer existed, that they would find this strange shadow that was left of them on the wall uh, after they were completely gone. And to him, it was a mark of the immaterial that had been left, a mark that there is the immaterial, there, that there was something there, but it was no longer there. So he got the idea of creating um, these, what he called anthropometries, in which he would put color onto a person's body, including his own, such as in the piece we own at the Hirshhorn over here. Uh, and this was his model, Rotrot, who later became his wife. Um, uh, and then having them press their body against the painting, against the surface, and then pulling away. So instead of painting an individual and trying to re recreate someone as a fiction, instead it was what was left of them after they had disappeared. First they were there, then they were gone, and this is what's left. And we'll find this also when we reach uh, the fire paintings uh, uh, later. And um, Belmont will talk at that point uh, about uh, the architecture uh, then. Um, Roland would like to read um, a piece by Michaud now to go with the anthropometries. Uh, <clears throat> yes, we have two small uh, texts by Michaud. Maybe we'll read the first one, Council on the Subject of Pines. Uh, I have only the English translation. I couldn't find the French text here in DC today. So uh, we'll read it in, in English. Council on the subject of pines. A monotonous noise does not necessarily calm. The drill calms no one, except perhaps the driller. Nevertheless, it is a monotonous sound that one has the greatest chance in finding calm. What is agreeable in the sound of wind blowing through a forest of pine is that this sound has no edge, it is round. But there is nothing of the gloomy. Or does it calm by inducing us to imagine an eminent and debonair being unable to definitely unhinge itself. However, one must not look too much to the top of the pines being blown by strong wind. For if one begins to imagine oneself seated on their apex in such a balancing act, one could, and even more naturally than if one were to find oneself on a swing or in an elevator, due to the strange and superb movement up there, feel oneself carried away, and, although forcing oneself not to think about it, certainly fall from wanting, far from wanting to meditate on this balancing, one is ceaselessly occupied with it. One feels oneself always in the, in the vacillating top of a pine one can no longer return to earth. 
And the other one, the other text is from uh, a book which is uh, The Great Ordeals of the Mind. And uh, the first paragraph is Désorientation. And in this text, uh, Michaud is exploring uh, with a drug, the mescaline, and he's trying to find what each moment is made of. And his idea is that one moment, even we are not aware of that, is made of an infinity of moments. And that's what is called the marvelous. And uh, the text is very interesting. I want to lift the veil from the normal, the unrecognized, unsuspected, incredible, enormous normal. The abnormal first acquainted me with it, disclosing to me the prodigious number of operations which the most ordinary of men performs, casually, unconcerned, as routine as work, interested only in the outcome and not in the mechanisms, however marvelous, far more wonderful than the ideas he sets such, so such store by which are often so commonplace, mediocre, unworthy of the matchless instrument that reveals and plies them. I want to lift the veil from the complex mechanisms which make man, first and foremost, an operator. And I'll read the text in French, if you want. Désorientation. Merci. Je voudrais dévoiler le normal. Unveil the normal. Je voudrais dévoiler le normal le méconnu, l'insoupçonné, l'incroyable, l'énorme normal. La normale me la fait connaître. Ce qui se passe, le nombre prodigieux d'opérations, even in English you can understand, le nombre prodigieux d'opérations que dans l'heure la plus détendue, le plus ordinaire des hommes accomplis, ne s'en doute en guerre, ni prétend attention aucune, travail de routine, dont le rendement seul l'intéresse et non ses mécanismes pourtant merveilleux, bien plus que ses idées à quoi elle tient tant, si médiocres souvent, communes, indignes de l'appareil hors ligne qui les découvre et les manie, je voudrais dévoiler les mécanismes complexes qui font de l'homme avant tout un opérateur. And the entire book uh, by uh, Michaud is to unveil these uh, numberless mechanisms that work in your mind in each milli, micro, microsecond. And so just to, to, to see how it works. Roland, thank you. I hate having to come back out here and talk after he speaks. Uh, it just doesn't sound the same. Um, I, I just want to say one word before we move on. And um, uh, I just want you to notice, uh, when we were in the very first gallery, one of the first images that you see in the show is a sort of seminal work by Eve Klein. It's almost become his logo in a kind of sense. It's called The Leap Into the Void, which he used on the cover of a fake newspaper that he did called Dimanche based on a real newspaper in, in, in France at the time. And uh, this photograph is of him leaping off the second story of a building and it's the leap into the void. And uh, we won't talk about how he did it, 
perhaps he actually did leap into the void that day. Um, but um, I mention it to you only to think about something and that, that it reoccurs in uh, Klein's work all the time, and that is the concept of flying and the idea of levitation. And behind me, you see people begin to fly. You see people descending in a work over there, which is actually rather based on Duchamp's new descending a staircase. And uh, um, as we talk about some of the architectural uh, ideas, we're also going to be talking about uh, uh, levitation. When we get Tad Knowles, we'll talk later about judo. And many, I think, of his ideas, of Klein's ideas about levitation and flying. Some of them came from Zen, some of them came from meditation, but a lot came from judo, I think. Um, Belmont, did you have anything you wanted to add at this point about architecture? Okay. Um, we're going to, sorry, okay. We're going to be moving on now to um, the next largest room, uh, a couple rooms from here, which will be the room of the fire paintings, uh, the ones that he did near the end of his life. Um, you're now in uh, uh, the room that we have the fire paintings in. These were some of the last works that Klein actually did. And um, towards the end of his life, he started thinking more and more about fire as really being at the heart of everything that he did. In fact, the colors that he chose to use, he ultimately realized that blue and also gold, we passed through the monogold room that was right before this, uh, in which he used uh, gold leaf to make paintings. Uh, and pink, you notice a lot of pink monochromes uh, here and there, even at the very beginning of his career, that all of those colors, the rose, the gold, and, and the blue, all come out of um, fire, in a way. So this idea of destruction, that one could destroy, but through that destruction, make something new, create something, is, is also at the heart of Klein's thinking. Now, he created these, these works. Actually, most of them were created at a, at a, a, a place called, um, uh, it was actually a gas works outside of Paris, in which he, and you can see him working right there, um, using this incredibly large uh, blowtorch. And he's working on the canvas. Right before this, he had had a couple women step up he put water on them, he they had stepped away, and then he's, he's got what appears to be a fireman there dousing this with water so it won't burn um, up. In fact, it's just a friend he put a fireman's hat on. So <laughs> I think Klein is one of the first artists that I'm aware of um, who really, in a funny way, kind of knew how to use the media. Uh, these ideas of the performances of the anthropometry in 1958 in which he invited you know, an audience to come to dressed to the hilt, uh, the way he would appear often in, uh, he was a member of the Knights of the Order of St. Sebastian, and he would appear in full regalia of St. Sebastian at times. When he got married, he was dressed completely in, in that outfit. Um, the idea of making a newspaper and distributing it around town seems to be a kind of media platform. Uh, but I should say that actually, it was the beginnings of artists' use of media, and he didn't quite know how to use it yet because he really got bit by it, bitten by it as well. Um, he uh, agreed to participate in a film called Mondo Kani that some of you might be familiar with from the 19, early 1960s. And in Mondo Kani, he was approached by the director, and he thought it was a legitimate film 
who, that the director wanted to actually make a film about what Klein did in a serious manner. Uh, as it turned out, Mondokani, not an uninteresting film, but Mondokani, a film which was about the bizarre, uh, the weird, the unusual. Uh, and so he was portrayed, strangely, as a Czechoslovakian artist in Mondokani as this bizarre figure. And he saw the premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in 1962, and he was really hurt uh, deeply by it, and that evening he suffered his first heart attack. So we could say that he knew how to use the media, but the media also struck back, and he, he got caught up in it and didn't quite know how to use it completely. Anyway, what we'd like to talk about in this room, because most of what we're going to be referring to, or what Belmont's going to be referring to, um, is work that is in the next couple of rooms, but it's much too small for this group to get into. And actually, fire is at the core uh, of much of what Belmont's going to speak about in terms of uh, air architecture, uh, which Klein was getting very much interested in uh, in the late 50s and the early 1960s. Thanks, Gary. Um, I think that uh, f Klein's experiments with fire are a good segue into his architecture, because we usually think of uh, fire relative to building as a destructive force, but in fact, Klein was viewing fire um, as a building material along with water and air. And in Klein's um, famous lecture at the Sorbonne in 1959, um, he, he stated that he considered his air architecture really to be the, the pinnacle, the apex of his artistic investigations, uh, not just because architecture, as we all know, is the mother of all arts, um, but also because it uh, represented a, 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 an elevation of his drive to dematerialize art. And that was the, the title of his lecture at the Sorbonne, was the evolution of art towards the immaterial. His air architecture uh, elevated this drive to remove physicality from his art to the environmental scale. It also had, was the um, best yet platform for his notions about the advancement of human society um, towards a new consciousness and utopian social condition. And by that, let me, I'll quote, he um, explained that He was looking towards um, the advent of a new society destined to undergo deep transformations in its very condition. Intimacy, both personal and in the family, will disappear. An impersonal ontology will be developed. The willpower of man will at last regulate life on a constantly, quote, wonderful level. Man will be so free that he can even levitate. As, as Carrie pointed out in um, these earlier paintings, the paintings you just saw. The obstacles that traditional architecture used to put up with will be eliminated. Klein's project in air architecture was quite simply to design habitable microclimates that people could inhabit 
um, in new communities that would represent a new paradise. Air was to be used as the principal building material to encapsulate the space, fire and water to modify temperature, and the earth underneath these immaterial structures would contain all the functional necessities like mechanical spaces and bathrooms and storage rooms uh, so that people would be free to live on the ground plane in a new manner of, of living um, unrestrained by conventional uh, the physical, the conventional conventions of the physical world. Um, by rejecting conventional architecture and construction, he would be taking us back to uh, before the proverbial primitive hut, but actually back to a pre-architectural Garden of Eden. So in a sense, his air architecture was really the uh, epitome of anti-architecture. Klein explained... A great architectural project that has always been close to my heart is the realization of a dwelling that is really immaterial, but emotionally, technically, and functionally practical. This house must be built with the help of a new material, air, blown into walls, partitions, roof, and furniture. It must, of course, be possible to provide air conditioning so that the construction material itself can become the general and ambient heating and refrigeration of the whole house. All the foundations of this house will, at most, reach no higher than ground level. These foundations will be built of solid material. All the sheds, kitchens, bathroom, etc. can be locked up. It will be underground. As for the rest, it will not be necessary to provide any means of closing the house, for there will, be not be en there will not be anything tangible to steal or take away. Um. <laughs> It's fascinating to me that Klein um, is sort of touching that while uh, his Klein's air architecture was clearly a utopian endeavor, he seemed to believe that his structures of air, fire, and water um, with a bit of work were technically feasible and could actually be built. Klein, for example, really got into, as you see in this film, he really got into the gadgetry of all the nozzles that would be used to shoot fire around, and he reportedly worried a lot about the noise that fans would make uh, blowing air across his structures to form their roofs. His air architecture started to take a conceptual, graphic, and a physical form in his collaborations with the architect uh, Werner Runau in 1958, when Runau selected Klein for the installation of his monumental monochromes at the um, theater in Gelsenkirchen. Uh, Runau, who was a, an avant-garde architect of, of considerable significance himself, um, collaborated with him on these early projects. Um, for the um, Gelsenkirchen project, Klein um, and Renau designed his first fire uh, fountains, which you'll see in uh, some beautiful drawings in the next room. But he, he also, they also designed um, an air cafe, which was to be adjacent to the theater with a roof of, 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 of forced air to protect you from rain and cold and walls of fire jets to keep you warm. And he was convinced that this was going to work, but the uh, client was skeptical 
and uh, balked at the cost not only of, of, of building this thing, but of powering it. So he sort of pulled the plug on the project, much to Runau's bitterness. But Klein marched along merrily and patented his, his, his invention of the, of the air roof. Um, I, I think about where, where these notions came from of, of being able to build a, a building of, of no materiality. Um, certainly his year in Japan, uh, I think he came to appreciate Japanese minimalism and Zen sense of, of space. But also, even though, according to Runau and others, Klein wasn't particularly interested in contemporary architecture or knowledgeable about it, he and Runau did ex discuss the work of Mies van der Rohe, who had, by the late 50s, taken his architecture to an extreme of transparency in the Farnsworth House, for example, that had been built in 1951. Um, so Klein was taking, ready to take uh, Mises' dictum of less is more to its extreme expression, while the modern movement in architecture had been uh, dedicated to eliminating superfluity, uh, which Mies and um, Gropius and Adolf Luce took as eliminating ornament and un unnecessary uh, mass from their architecture. Klein would take it one step further and eliminate structure entirely. Um, Klein also knew Philip Johnson, who had um, built his glass house in uh, 1951, perfectly transparent house in which he too had buried all the mechanical stuff underground, you know, so nobody could see it. And Klein knew Johnson, they corresponded. There's some wonderful letters in a case down here. Um, and Philip Johnson had purchased a couple of Klein's blue paintings. Uh, and then later, Klein uh, accused Philip Johnson of stealing his idea for a fire and water fountain that Johnson had proposed for the 1964 World's Fair in New York. Um, Philip denied it vehemently, saying, well, anybody could have thought that up. But uh, I, I tend to uh, suspect that Klein was right, since Philip Johnson was a shameless thief of the best ideas of all of his collaborators, including Mies van der Rohe and the Glass House. Um, Klein's, but Buckminster Fuller was also, I think, it was an influence here because Fuller was at this time pushing his own highly technocratic drive towards eliminating materiality from architecture. It was 1961 when Fuller proposed his dome over Manhattan to control the climate, which was sort of very much akin to um, Klein's subsequent projects, but very much in the air in the 1950s was this notion that, that um, technology was going to answer all of our, uh, all of our problems. The culmination of, of Klein's air architecture projects were the, uh, was the um, Cité Climatisée, in which he designed a whole city that was going to be um, um, protected by his air shelters. This was designed in conjunction, in collaboration with the uh, architect Claude Parent, who was also um, very significant in the history of, 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 of avant-garde architecture in the 60s and 70s. Um,
In, in the Cité Climatisé, there's some beautiful drawings in the next room that you'll see as we go through. Uh, the, entire, the entire city is covered by an air roof. It's bisected by a highway uh, that leads to the airport. One side of the city is industrial, the other side is residential. And the ground plane is glass so that everybody feels like they're walking on air. And you can look down to see the mechanical guts of this city. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's a drawing in the next room that looks to me all the world like uh, a diagram for a modern day geothermal heat plant. So in a sense, Klein was anticipating the next decade's concern about harnessing the forces of the earth in an ecological way um, to work, control climate by working with it. Um, and in this perfect climate, of course, nobody needed clothes. So we were going to be into a post-clothing era. Everybody would walk around naked. And since you know, there were no material possessions to have, there was no need for security or privacy or even furniture. You can see in the drawings that he, he, he anticipated uh, chairs and tables and beds that were made of air jets that come up and, you know, and support you. Um, he was reportedly delighted by the invention in England uh, at the time of, uh, of a hospital bed of air jets designed for burn victims. And he said, huh, see, it can work, you know, why not tables and everything else? Um, and as, as, as Kerry said, that Klein was always interested in this whole notions of levitation. He, at the same time, was designing sculptures that levitated on on sound waves, on electromagnetic uh, fields, and it all became sort of a piece. So you can see, you know, leaping into the void, levitation. Um, his drawings illustrate a, um, a blissful Eden, almost ecstatic with these levitating figures uh, floating on jets of air. Uh, one of them, I swear, is a ringer for uh, Bernini's St. Teresa. Um, but at the same time, to me at least, they suggest a certain underlying anxiety that this whole, this new Eden that's based upon technology and harnessing of of cosmic forces is in a very uh, tenuous, unstable um, state. That, you know, if there were anything, you know, relying upon the force of the fans to keep your air roof functioning, relying upon the cooperation of geothermal forces, or, you know, a big hurricane not coming to knock out your fire walls, uh, you know, all is lost because there's no longer. A, uh, a cave to go run into to hide. You're really exposed there. And so I see in these drawings of Eden a certain you know, anxiety of the um, incipient Cold War period. So. Thanks, Belmont. That was great. Um, I want to uh, let Roland have the last uh, word in this uh, uh, panel.
panel discussion, but uh, he's going to read um, some more material. And then when he is through, we're going to go upstairs to the next floor and uh, to a room called the Learner Room, which you will all recognize. It's the room with the windows uh, in it. And then uh, Tad Knowles and his colleagues are going to be uh, discussing a little bit about judo and demonstrating judo. And then maybe we can uh, answer a few questions after uh, that demonstration. So roll on. Thank you. Okay. Uh, just a few words. Uh, because we see this theme of void, and you know that uh, Yves Klein stayed in Japan several years uh, at the beginning of his uh, life. And uh, I was in Japan many years, uh, and uh, it's quite difficult to understand this concept of void uh, for Japanese. Maybe you know, and, and Yves Klein was reading uh, also Zen texts, especially a famous Zen teacher was in Europe, um, Deshimaru Suzuki and uh, he was reading that book. So the idea, one fa very, very famous uh, koan, you know the koans, there are sm small sentences which seems, seem without meaning. Uh, one of the most famous in Japan is uh, the, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And uh, this is exactly uh, a short sentence which can just lead you to the understanding of uh, mu, of this uh, void, because there is no way to explain it, no way to see it, there is only the way to experience it. And I know a, a, a Zen teacher, and he's saying that, for instance, in the Bible, you have the same kind of koan. For instance, uh, in the beginning was the world. You would think that in the beginning is a million years of, ago, 10 million years ago, hundreds of million years ago, thousands of million years ago, uh, and you will never find the answer. And the answer for him is in the saying of this word. Think at what it, what it means. In the beginning was the word. You have said the beginning as soon as you said the word. You know, so this is uh, a kind of word that you experience. And that is exactly uh, the theme of uh, uh, that you cannot describe the void. You can only go through an experience of it. As with the Quran system, you. You just have to experience a sentence. I don't know if I'm clear enough, but it's just maybe a little bit about uh, Japan. And I found a text by Jacques Dupin. It's not exactly the same kind of inspiration, but it's the same kind of meditation about the void, and it's finding the void inside yourself, and this being your center from where everything will then reappear. Uh, maybe we'll read it in, in English first. It's a very short text. And you will see uh, that at one moment is said, but time knelt down. So it's something you will see in the text written by Yves Klein, the phenomenology du temps. And uh, I think this text has something to do with this kind of concepts. At instants, I thought I merged with a deeper reality like a river the sea, occupied a place, at least excited to it with stealth, left an imprint on it, stole a firebrand from it, a place where the opacity of the world seemed to open into the rustle and mingle of word, light, and blood. I thought I crossed, alive and wide-eyed, the node where I was born. 
a gray and tolerable long-sufferingness, a smothering comfort were abolished at a blow and justified by the steady illumination of a few words that fitted against all hope. We collided outside of time, but time knelt down, and if I did not master it on its course, then at least I ordered its lightning, its lightning eclipses, so I thought. The throbbing of the abyss punctuated like abuse the dews offering to the sun outside on each barb. So I will read it in French. J'ai cru rejoindre, j'ai cru rejoindre par instant une réalité plus profonde comme un fleuve, la mer, occuper un lieu, du moins y accéder de manière furtive, y laisser une empreinte, y voler un tison, un lieu où l'opacité du monde semblait s'ouvrir au ruissellement confondu de la parole, de la lumière et du sang. J'ai cru traverser vivant, les yeux ouverts, le nœud, le nœud dont je naissais, une souffrance morne et tolérable, un confort étouffant se trouvait d'un coup aboli et justifié par l'illumination fixe de quelques mots inespérément accordés. Nous coïncidions hors du temps, mais le temps pliait les genoux, et si je ne le maîtrisais pas dans sa course, du moins commandais-je alors à ces fulgurantes éclipses, je l'ai cru, le battement de l'abîme scandait abusivement l'offrande de rosée au soleil dehors sur chaque ronce. 